Crows, uh, we just finished iMOOC Season 3, Episode 2 with Alice Keeler. She is absolutely amazing. It was just a blast to talk to her. I was dying laughing. Uh, she talks about ditching homework, uh, her love of spreadsheets, school choice, and we take participant questions. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, welcome everybody to iMOOC Season 3, Episode 2. We are lucky to have uh, Alice Keeler join us today, uh, which is awesome because a lot of the conversations we actually had with Joe Bowler last week, uh, Alice is going to hammer them home. And so uh, we're pretty pumped up. Uh, she does amazing work. I, I've seen her speak several times and just blown away by how she pushes thinking. And so that's really one of the reasons we wanted to have her is because um, if you are comfortable, be prepared to be challenged. So um, she she's always pushing me to be better and just love her work. And uh, hopefully we get to talk about her love for spreadsheets, which I find is one of the most fascinating things. <laughs> she can see getting excited already. Um, and uh, all, as always, we have Katie Martin joining us. Um, and make sure you send Katie Martin some love. She is having an awesome day, but we just want to make it more awesome. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. I'm going to turn it over to Katie. And uh, Katie and Alice are going to have most of the conversation tonight. I'm going to keep an eye on your questions, uh, your tweets, so that you can uh, make sure that you engage if you are watching this live. So, Katie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Awesome. All right. Welcome, everybody. We are so excited to be here tonight. Again, um, looking forward to a great conversation with Alice and always looking forward to the community and hearing your thoughts. This week has been great. We loved all the blogs. We loved reading your thoughts. There's so many new bloggers this week and so many people stepping out of their comfort zones. So um, we're going to have some great conversations and Alice is going to kick us off. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and um, what inspires you to do what you do? All right. Hey, thanks for having me, George. Thanks for those nice words. Um, so I taught high school math for 14 years, which honestly was the last thing I want to do is to teach or do math. And you know, the Lord just has a twisted sense of humor. And so, uh, I'm not really sure how I ended up here today, but what I do is I blog a lot and I tweet a lot, a lot. Um, I really like working with teachers. And so I teach at California state university, Fresno in the teacher credential program. And then I travel around just working with teachers on how to integrate technology and that doesn't mean being paperless. I love paper. And today I made a spreadsheet that <laughs> is intended to be printed on paper uh, for math. Someone shared, a, shared something. I'm like, this could be a spreadsheet. Um, but it is a paper activity. So I'm really about student engagement. And I have five kids. They are 13, 12, 10, 7, and 5. Alice awesome. doesn't mess around. She does everything. Whether it's having family, uh, it's awesome. So, Katie, sorry. No, well, and I, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to chat with you tonight, Alice, not only as an educator, but as a mom who has kids going through school and really is seeing this from a lot of different angles. Uh, you recently wrote a book, Ditch That Homework, with Matt Miller. Um, I'd love to, there it is. So, tell us a little bit about the book and um, kind of the premise of this and what you hope to put, how you hope to push thinking. Um, with this text. Absolutely. Now, first, it is a thing to rub a DVC book on your face, and we do have a hashtag for that, the Book Face Club. So, George, I hope that you're in on that. I know that your book would qualify, so you can join us. Uh, so, you know, Matt, Matt Matt's awesome to work with, by the way. Uh, he just has a way of making words flow like magic. I, I just, like, am in complete awe of his writing style. So if you just want a really good sample of writing... Um, check out how Matt wrote Ditch That Homework. So a lot of it was us brainstorming together, but Matt did the majority of the writing because he's really good at it, and I'm a math teacher, and that's not a good excuse um, because I do I do like to listen to Grammar Girl. Okay, so uh, Ditch That Homework is really a book about teaching, and when you have really, you know, change your teaching practices, when you leverage things like technology in particular, that we can really reduce our need to have homework. And so step number one, what is the easiest way to reduce or eliminate homework? Stop calling it homework. It's not the homework that's essential. It's independent practice. So if we just change the vocabulary, let's just start calling it independent practice and think about why are we having students practice and when, where is not magical. In fact, the where 
can be contentious. It's it's not equitable. You know, going into different uh, families and homes, you never know. Even a, a family that's normally a good place to do homework, in any particular day, there could be stress or, or something going on that you just never know what's going on inside somebody's house that could make it difficult for them to do work. That was something else that Joe mentioned last week, that homework is very inequitable. Um, and so, you know, some of the, the teachers, some people listening are saying like, well, what does it look like? What should we be doing instead? What, what recommendations do you have, especially well, in like high school? And I taught high school math and no homework. And as Joe Bowler, this is honestly, it's like a drinking game every time I mention Joe Bowler's name. So I have some water or I have tea um, in my ditch that textbook mug. Um, Branding, it's important. It is important. <laughs> I happened to pick this one up today. I'm like, well, this is lucky. Um, but Joe Bowler says in her in her book that you know homework isn't necessary for math. And and when you read the research, it says in elementary school homework really is not that important. Um, doesn't add that much value. In fact, it's John Hattie's work says none, zero. There's a zero effectiveness rating for homework. And then you start to see a little bit into middle school and in the high school, and then in math in particular. And from the and I've read many research articles. The best that I could really find was that that in particular in math was a percent gain. And so the the bang for your buck of when you have students do homework is so low. And part of the reason is just cognitive load. Students are learning all day and then their brains are full. They need to re, you know rest their brain. They need to play. There's some great research to show the benefits of play and having kids go outside and do creative things and move. They should move. They shouldn't sit in a chair filling stuff out. Um, that those have more benefits than doing the, the homework. So what does it look like in the classroom? I stopped giving homework for high school math. And what happened? Nothing, as should be expected. If the effectiveness is at best 2%, um, you would expect to see really, it shouldn't go up and it shouldn't go down. It should be pretty much the same, which was about what I experienced, except what I get is better relationships with kids. And you know, when I, you look at John Hattie's work, we did this meta study of studies and what is effective for learning and relationships with the teacher is just consistently very high and important. And so what did I usually start my day with? The very first thing I would start my day with teaching math was hassling kids for not having their homework. You know, it's like, this isn't good for learning. And I would spend 15 minutes going over the homework. Waste of time because when the kid thinks they're done with something, it's like they're coated in Teflon and anything like say after that, like it slides off of them. Like, why are we talking about this? Because we're done with this. Shouldn't we move on? Um, and so we come in like they've slept on it or they finish copying it in the hall, which we know happens a lot. Um, so, you know, we come in, we go over homework and that's that's a chunk of time that we could spend having kids actively learning so if you take all the minutes and all the efforts you put into uh, going over the homework assigning homework hassling kids about homework calling parents about homework take all that time and ditch it then how much time do we have to have kids spend actively learning so let's talk about the number of minutes a kid should be doing homework first of all that is a myth it's 10 minutes per grade level is a recommendation it is not based on a lick of research it was just saying like you know let's some kids are just getting too much so let's put in some guidelines of 10 minutes per grade level some dude made that up that is that that doesn't mean you should have 10 minutes per grade level but let's go with that okay so high school 12th graders 12 times 10 is 120. they have six classes so divide that by six 120 by divided by six is 20 minutes so a senior should be doing 20 minutes per teacher. So the question I have is, can you buy 20 minutes back in your class? How can we make our class run more efficiently so that we're building relationships and giving kids feedback, which those have high effectiveness ratings for learning. Homework is very low. So when you look at the list from John Hattie's research, high at the top of the list, feedback that's actionable, relationships with the teacher, mastery learning, cooperative tasks, all of these things are very high. Very low in the 0.2 range is homework in PowerPoint. 
<laughs> you know, it's it, average teacher effectiveness rating is 0.4. So when you look at the, and you just go look at research and just look at the list of what affects learning. Since homework is so low, why don't we swap out homework for something that has a higher effectiveness rating? So I really feel like I get a lot of bang for my buck focusing on high quality feedback. I try to stop assigning myself paperwork, um, grading, and that whole list that John Hattie has, nowhere on there did it say grading improves learning. And so I'm like, great, I'm going to give that up. So I try to spend less of my time managing paperwork, which it, that's lesson plan design. So I design for more cooperative tasks, more things that we do in class. Feedback now is always better than feedback later. So how, I'm, and just think to myself, when I design an assignment, how can I do feedback now, quick? How fast is the feedback? If the answer is slow, which homework by nature is going to be slow, you're not going to, the best you could do is go over it the next day. So Alice, I think that there's a lot of great points that you made about good things in, in the classroom and really prioritizing. I love that. Making sure that there's room for doing what matters during the day instead of meaningless tasks. So two things I'm kind of wondering about. I think there's a lot of conversations that need to happen between parents, you know, at school and educators. We have a lot of assumptions about what, what qualifies as a rigorous classroom. And I think sometimes we're assigning homework and doing these things because we think we're supposed to. So I'm kind of wondering on two fronts um, and choose, like when you're working with your new teachers, um, what are, how do you kind of help them think differently about their designing their classrooms? And then the second is how do you help as parents, like how do you work with your school and think about that um, and different parents to help them understand that homework isn't important? Let me flip those two around if I can answer the second one first. Perfect. If you're ever going to do anything different, which I constantly am doing, like, well, did 100% of my students learn math and they love it? No? Iterate, right? And so I, after reading a lot of research around grades and grading practices, I just can't find any that, that support traditional grading practices. So I experiment a lot with doing a little more gamification and, and less on, on traditional grades. And what, I, what I've really learned is you don't want to step in the hornet's nest. Have you ever talked to somebody who's upset and you're like, oh, just calm down? That, that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, like they want to be mad. So the trick is don't let them get mad. Don't let them show up at your doorstep with pitchforks. You know, so before you do something that is non-traditional, because we're creatures of habit and parents want to support their kids. And when it doesn't go the way that they're used to, they get frustrated. And then when parents are frustrated, and this happens with homework, so not just ditching homework or, or other things, then they start saying things like, well, this is stupid, and your class is stupid, and they're in, and not intentionally, but they're frustrated. So you don't want to let parents get frustrated. You want to be proactive. So before you start saying we're doing no homework, don't just put it in your syllabus and send it in a newsletter home. Call them. Call every single parent. I had 150 students, and I did this. I would call. I just made a parody. Calling parents is not a waste of time. It's building those relationships with parents and, and doing that up front. So spending the first week of school, I can just intentionally design where I have to collect fewer things so that I can swap that time out for talking to parents and to call them. Um, because I'm just going to, you know, bang for my buck. I only have so many hours of my time. What's going to give me the best use of my time? And so a really good use of my time is making connections with parents. So what I do is I take the first week, week and a half, kind of back off on assignments that I need to collect and go over and, and make that phone call. And, you know, it's just not a hard sell to remind them, like, you know, a lot of the times it's not at your kid's level. It's too hard or it's too easy. Have you ever, you know, had your kid rolling on the floor? This no, no, the teacher does it. <laughs> no, I'm a math teacher. My son comes and asks me, third grade, you know, can you help me with the associative and the, the associative and the commutative property? Well, I can, but what about the other 29 third grade parents? How many of them are sitting here thinking, I feel dumb, I can't do third grade math, but then it ends up with my son rolling on the floor screaming at me. That's, that's, not, that's not a good idea. So, you know, remind parents, how many times have you just been fighting with your kid? How many times have you not been able to have family dinner time? How many times have you wanted to take your kid to a movie or you wanted to go out in the park? And the answer is, but I have homework. You know, I... I, I just, I love that building relationships. We talk about building relationships a lot and that's a really important part of the innovators mindset. 
But I think that um, building relationships with the families and the community is so important as well because that helps everyone be on the same page. So I just really appreciate you bringing that up. So when we were doing the research on the book, what we, we sent out a survey to parents and overwhelmingly homework sucks and they hate it. And you know, there's, there's a small majority like, I love homework, 10 out of 10. Uh, that they only have one child, by the way. I did a, made a pivot table. I have five. Think about trying to help five kids with homework. It's awesome. Not. I can't imagine five kids at all. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> so what we found is, is what they like is that it's how they know what's going on at school. We can do a better nope. job of communicating. So what I started advocating is instead of sending materials home where the student is the audience and we ask the parent to interpret it, like, okay, th this was written for the child. I have to figure out what this was, try and get my kid to explain it. I don't know what it is, and I have to contact the teacher. Like, what is this thing? Is instead is to think of intentionally addressing the parents as the parent is the audience. So, uh, you know, I've got a couple of books on Google Classroom. So, shameless self-promotion. Um, so, in Google Classroom, when you create an assignment, and this is obviously universal to any tool that you would use, where do you, sh where do you share what's going on with your class? It's 2017, you should be sharing that digitally somewhere. So, in Google Classroom, when you write the description, I have an example, like say you have little kids and they're growing beans in a styrofoam cup, right? So you might just put it into classroom, go check your bean. Okay, well now take that from a parent perspective. What does that mean? Go check your bean. The kids know they're there every day. You're there, you're pointing at it. You've been having conversations, it's ongoing. But just think about a parent that looks at it with no outside understanding of what's going on. Go check your bean. So putting in a parent corner, that in the description of assignments, I type parent corner and then specifically addressing to the parent what we're trying to learn and what we're doing, where the parents, the audience, we're, we're studying plant growth and then we're measure, using measurements for math. And so the students have in a styrofoam cup by the window, they're growing a bean and they're going to go check it. So just taking that time to just type up a description where the parents, the audience, I bet you that would stop at least one parent from sending you an email. So it will. it is a swap of time. It's not extra time to do that, but taking the time to figure out how to better communicate with parents can alleviate a lot of that homework stress as well. So what do I, what do I do with my students at Fresno State? I try to convince them to make engaging lesson plans. <laughs> I think that would be the theme of my class is that's boring. Try again. Uh, and you probably say it just like that. I think well, my uh, online right now, so I'm just like, that's boring. I, I think uh, I, I think uh, you're gonna see five kids trending on Twitter because about 90 people on iMOOC actually tweeted that you have five kids already. I think <laughs> that's kind of freaking out that how much you get done uh, with such a large family. So it's absolutely amazing. I, 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 when you were talking, um, I was thinking about. Um, I was in Starbucks the other day and I was uh, catching up on something and I saw probably like a five-year-old with their mom and a seven-year-old and they were just like hammering through homework, you know, right after school. And I was like, like God, like, it's just crazy to me. Um, and, and, and like, and that's kind of, you know, the culture. And, and I actually, I don't, like the thing is, I don't know if that was actually, it just seemed like that was more about the parent than the child, right? Like, or about the school. Like, I don't even know if the school was actually doing that as well. And, and that night I actually had a conversation with um, a dad and we were talking about like social media and, you know, the opportunities that exist for kids. And then he brought up the the balance argument, which I hear uh, over and over again. And I said, well, what do you, what do you do? He said, I'm a physician. I said, do you believe you're balanced? He's like, no. And I said, why would you push that on your kid? I said, like, you, there's never, cause he was like, well, she needs to read books, and she needs to read books. And I'm like, did you read books as a kid? And she's like, he's like, no. I said, well, you've done pretty well for yourself. Like, the, the, the notion of, like, a lot of times what we do, like, I actually know that I hated reading books um, for most of my adult life because I was continuously forced to read books I didn't want to read, and it just sucked it out of me. And so I just love your thoughts on, on those, those stories I just shared. Absolutely. 
uh, reading is probably the most powerful thing that we can ask kids to do. And I, I, I cannot even remotely remember where I read this. So I, I don't I don't know if it was a research study or just some lunatic ranting on the internet. So but I'm just going to say this. One of the one of the best things that will help your kid to just be a successful human being is for you to read to your kid a lot. And so, you know, not just little kids. I remember when I was in high school, my mom would read us like Chronicles of Narnia, like my brother and sister and I, um, I have one of each. So I'm one of three. I don't know why I have five because uh, they're <laughs> awesome. That's why I have five. But uh, so the three of us would sit with my mom and she would read to us even when I was in high school. And so, you know, when we talk about homework, give the parents homework, um, have the parents read to their kid. There's just not, Oh, that's just so valuable. It just helps them in life in general. Um, reading is is probably the only thing that you can really find strong um, support for in terms of homework. Um, but when you force kids to do it, when you have to log it, when you have to log anything, then you hate it. It becomes a chore. It's a drudgery. Um, so my Fresno State students, I would get them in a, these are pre-service teachers. So they've just graduated from college or about to. So at the end of the semester, I get them in a circle and I would just say, Tell me just something that comes to your mind, K-12. Something just, what are things that you think about? And we would just go around the circle and share what our memories were. And one per, and usually it's positive things, right? They're like, we would, my um, English teacher had to sing rap songs for, for Shakespeare. Things like that. And then one student brings up Accelerated Reader AR and how it just sucked his love of reading it, and that he was forced to read books he didn't want to read. He had books that he wanted to read, but he was told they were below his reading level, so he was told he couldn't read them. The associations we give kids with learning impacts them their whole life. So we punish kids with running, then they hate to run. Well, I, I just want to jump in on that too, because I, much like George, felt the same way. I hated reading, and I'm sure I've, I probably never read a book in through high school or college because everyone told me what to read. And so I didn't want to do it, but I, I would agree with you. And I love to read with my kids. My kids like to read also, but it's the choice. The second we start mandating it. So we can take any good research article. We can take any great practice, but the second we start mandating it and telling people how to do it, you take the enjoyment right out of it and the value, I think. So yeah. So just making sure I love that choice, giving them opportunities. And I really feel too, like it's the relationships that you're building through reading and through, through engaging in those activities. So reading is a really great way to connect with kids and build relationships, just like you said. So instead of the reading logs, ask kids what they're reading and be truly interested in it. You know, talk, you want kids to read, you read, show them you're reading, talk about what you're reading. And that, what are you reading at home? And engage them that, you know, you've, you're excited about reading and you're excited about what they're reading. You're going to get a lot more bang for that because it's the long-term longevity of lo loving to read. And so sometimes we just, we get short-term gains, sacrifice the long-term gain for the short-term gain. So like, yep, I got the kid to read today, but they never want to read again. So that brings up a great point. We, one of the, um, big points that um, is in the innovator's mindset is if students leave school less curious than when they started, we have failed them. Um, what are your thoughts about this? And just, great line. <laughs> it, is a, it is a great line. I, you know, I was thinking too. <laughs> um, wait, can, it's, can I, I think it's a good line. I think it's a pretty good line. I make stickers. Like I make stickers for everything. I have a sticker <laughs> for my, uh, the answer is always a spreadsheet. And then I have a new one that says, I don't think I have any near me, but three dots and a tiny triangle make me excited. <laughs> Go ahead, Katie. Well, I'm like, okay. I was just, I was trying to figure it out. The three dots and a tiny triangle. Oh, okay. They, in Google, like they hide everything. So if you see, there's like tiny triangles everywhere. So when you make a new assignment in Google Classroom, look for it, count it. There are six, six tiny triangles. Don't wonder. Click on it. <laughs> you know, and it's like there's three dots. It needs more options. Three little dots. Like, click on them. Like, Alice, how do I edit it? It's the three dots. <laughs> so I learned something new. Thank you. I made it into a sticker. So, George, you know, I need it. I need this as a sticker. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, sticker mule. After we make it into a sticker, 
how would you suggest that we we stow curiosity in students? How do you suggest that teachers do that in the classroom? After a sticker. After, the after sticker. they have the sticker. Make your lesson plans according to the five E's. So this is kind of a, a more modern lesson plan template. You can just Google it. Five E, five E's. And the five E's are engage, explore, explain, extend, and then evaluate. So we tend to start a lesson by doing the thinking for the students. Hey guys, here's what you need to know. I'm gonna wait for you to copy that down. And then you can do some practice with the problems I just showed you as a math teacher. So instead, what we wanna do is, have, is we wanna engage students in their learning, help them to be curious, that they, that they wanna come to class. I like uh, Dave Burgess and Teach Like a Pirate, is if students had the option to come into the lesson, would you be teaching to an empty room? So this is one of the things that when I'm helping my students write essential questions for their lesson plans, I just ask them, if you posted the essential question outside of your door and students didn't have to come, would they, I wanna learn that. Are, are they curious? I wanna know the answer to that. I love Robert Kaplinsky. He's an expert in DOK, specifically for math, um, depth of knowledge, critical thinking. And if you go to his website, robertkaplinsky.com, he's got lessons up at the top for all grade levels. And so one of his essential questions is, how do we save Nelly, the rap star? Do you have any idea what math lesson that is? Nope. <laughs> That's the point, right? It's like, if you wanna ask kids a question, they want it, I wanna know that. And oh, by the way, you need some math, so let me show that to you. You know, so how do I help kids to be curious is I, is I start my lesson by engaging them in something that they care about and that is relevant. Um, I like to try and follow Twitter handles, some of them that will tweet out pictures, history pictures or statistics and data. And because those are great things to spark conversations and curiosity. And so then it should be explore. What can kids figure out without you? Drop the ego. The answer is a lot. And so let them explore inquiry. What do they discover in Joe Bowler's book? Yeah, take a drink. Drink. <laughs> so there's an example of a calculus teacher that she starts her lesson by bringing in lemons. And she asks the students to find the volume of the lemons and, the, and so they're working in small groups and some of them are dunking the lemons uh, displacement. Some of them are cutting them up and trying to figure out the volume by cutting them up. And so then the small groups share out because we want to value different approaches. We want to value students thinking. It's so much more engaging to do your own thinking rather than to learn what somebody else wants you to know. So start with students thinking, sharing that. And she said, guys, that's all really awesome. But you know, we have this thing called the integral, which finds the area under the curve. Now, if she had started that lesson with, guys, we're going to find the area under the curve of a graph. Every single kid in the room is thinking, who cares? But when you, when you explain third, when you engage, explore, and then explain, explain comes third. Then kids are like, I need to know that. Can you teach me that? Because I need to know that. Because this was a pain in the butt to stick these lemons and whatever. I need the integral, right? It's, I, want, I want kids to want to know how to learn. And then when I let kids explore first and I see what can they do without me, which again, is a lot. Um, then I, don't, I can be more focused in when I, what I'm explaining, right? What do they know and what do I need to fill in rather than just assuming they know nothing and tell them everything? And so when you do a lesson like that, the students spend more time actively engaged and actively learning. So there was an article from Harvard, the math department, and it said, you know what? It doesn't matter how good of a lecturer you are if students, active student engagement is always better. And so spending that time of having kids actively exploring, looking at things, I think that's how we help kids be more curious and let their ideas and not all the students doing the same thing. So, well, and just, oh, go ahead, George. Sorry, Alice. There's just some complaints in the chat that you don't have enough energy for this talk. So <laughs> I don't know. You might have to. You have to. You might have to pick it up a little bit. No, I just your passion is so uh, amazing, and I just you know one of the things I really appreciate, you, Alice, about you is I know that you're very serious about your work, but you have so much fun doing what you do, and I just wish that was the norm. Because uh, it's sometimes it's like it's like it's like one or the other, and I just I, I really appreciate that. And and building on that, um, uh, talk about spreadsheets. 
I want you. To, I want. To, I want you to talk about spreadsheets. I need you to talk about spreadsheets. Talk a rant. Yeah, go for it. I need you okay, to do well, it. I'm going to rant first, right? Because one of the most valuable skills really is knowing how to use a spreadsheet. Every single manager that I know uses a spreadsheet. So how do we let kids graduate from high school not knowing how to do a spreadsheet? How, you know, as teachers, it is essential that we know how to manipulate data quickly so we can respond to students. I collect data from students. Data is not a four-letter word. Old data is a four-letter word. And it is, I mean, when I start to think about some of the ways where I've gotten data and been able to help students that were struggling right now, because students are emotionally invested for about five seconds. And then the longer the gap between them getting feedback and then finishing a task, the less they care. And so it, it's such an important skill that teachers know how to make a pivot table, that they know how to organize data uh, on a spreadsheet information and use that to really impact student learning. How is that not an essential part of every teacher credential program? I don't understand. And if I hear this one more time, that you can't use technology and math, my whole head's going to explode. So, you know, more shameless self-promotion. I have a book on teaching math with Google Apps. You should write more books. I, <laughs> These are all done in the last, like, year, by the way. couple of years. Um, <laughs> all done with the Google Apps for Littles with uh, Christine Pinto. But I hear this all the time, is you can't teach math with Google. You can't do, use technology in math. Like, who are these people in 2017 who do math without technology? It's a great question. <laughs> I, my dad's an engineer. You think he's doing that stuff by hand? Like, give me a break. Um, although I think he would really love the return to the slide rule. He talks about that a lot. I don't even know what slide rule is. I'm not, I'm 41. This week You've lost me. But I know it's a slide rule. So like, you know, we obviously, the calculator is the obvious tool. Um, but spreadsheets, spreadsheet, where, where do you use math, technology and math? Spreadsheets. Where do you use math in the real world? Spreadsheets. It's a giant function. Um, so, Alice, do you, do you teach kids how to create and use the spreadsheets to look at their own data and, and make sense of their own information? So glad you said it that way, Katie, because there's so much good research around, you know, when kids track their own data, when they're responsible, when they do, as um, Jen Roberts, she was sharing, when we have kids do self-grading, self-reporting, mm -hmm. students are in charge of that. When they, when they map their own data, they learn more. They have more ownership over their learning. And so helping kids to use spreadsheets just for that to keep track of their own progress. Spreadsheets are great because you can also gamify it and as they and have them level up and to create challenges. I have a spreadsheet on my website where you can uh, create a list of challenges, put how difficult they are, how much XP they're worth. And when the students mark them off, they get badges and then it'll create a display page of that and then embed on their visual portfolios. Um, Google sites are awesome for that. Bye. What What's that, what, Alice, what, just, just so everyone, your, your site is, it's alicekeeler.com, correct? Alicekeeler.com, and if you do slash game PD. So I initially made it um, for professional development as a way to differentiate instruction at a professional development um, event. But I thought, wait, kids can use this. And so it's all set up. You can just alicekeeler.com slash game PD is a way to give kids choice. Right, Katie? Because it's super important. I actually <laughs> right, Katie? Right, Katie? Right. <laughs> uh, started teaching math you know it's so important in my teaching math I decided that I just need to give kids choice so I would do detention I would assign detention to kids on my prep period and you know the kids come in and they're frothing at the mouth and I'm like ah, my teacher is evil I'm like uh -huh, that's great just hold on a second uh, Thursday detention or Saturday detention um Thursday okay great please continue to rant about how your teacher is so evil and they're just like so taken back that they had a choice you know, they don't even care it's detention. They can't even rant anymore. And then later when they come and they're, they do want to complain, they're like, ooh, there's your detention. I'm like, hey, you chose it. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then they go. They're like, this is awesome. So, <laughs> so, you know, even if I just do problems 1 through 10 or 11 through 20, where I give kids any choice, it helps them to feel like they have a locus of control. And by the way, I got that from some, from some research when I was working <laughs> on a doctorate. Uh, is this the kids having a sense of locus of control that they don't feel like they're everything's being imposed? I mean, they, even my college students still raise their hand to ask to go to the bathroom. You know, like every bit of their life is so like, do this, do it this way. If you don't have your name in the upper right hand corner and it better be in pencil, you get no points. <laughs> you 
So that's exactly it. So trying to give kids as much choice as possible is a really great way to help them. Okay, I'm gonna jump in, Katie. I'm gonna jump in. So I gotta. I want to ask you something. Obviously, uh, this uh, opportunity is. Uh, we wanted to actually connect with authors, connect with educators, uh, and talk about. Um, their stuff, but we also want to connect it to the notion of the innovator's mindset and innovation. So I just want to know what what are your what do you, why do you think or what do you think about innovation education? Tell us a little bit about it, and why do you think it's crucial educators or innovators if you do it all? She's stunned by the question. Oh no, I lost her. She, I think she outran Google. <laughs> her think, new hard drive couldn't handle Alice. it. I think Alice already or actually outran Google because I've never. It's amazing how much energy she has uh, uh, for for doing this. So, Katie, let's. Why don't you talk about? Um, why don't you talk about how you use spreadsheets in your I work? I do not use spreadsheets. <laughs> I need a lesson from Alice. I'm like, uh, I feel really inept because I don't use spreadsheets. So you can get her back. So here, I'm gonna. We're gonna actually. I'm gonna give you. Uh, I think she's coming back. She's coming hopefully. back. I just my question was so good that she went to go do some research on it. So George, why don't you tell us why you think innovation is important? Oh, there she is, Alice. By Alice. We. we uh, I think my I think my 32 gigs of RAM failed me. I think I think that you outworked Google. So I think that's actually happened. I used um, up all of the internet, apparently. Well, okay. So I'm gonna. So the question. So so I'm gonna ask you a question. And I apologize uh, if it's redundant for the people that are watching. And then, but before I ask you the question, anyone who has questions for Alice, tweet them out to hashtag iMOOC. Uh, you can do it in the YouTube live chat, and you can actually connect there too. So Alice, the the book. Um, obviously, this is a course around the book, The Innovator's Mindset. And I just want to know what you think think about innovate the notion of innovation and education, and do you think uh, educators should be innovators? Like, should be you know thinking differently about how what they create with what they do. So I, I would just love your thoughts on this while we still have you. Absolutely. Well, we teach the future, right? It, it's not about what we're comfortable with or things that worked for us in the past because culture and technology and society are constantly changing. So if we're not innovators, we are failing our students. I want you to think about how old is Google? It's 19 years old. It just had its 19th birthday. Mm. I'm, I'll be 41 on Friday. So that means over half of my life, Google did not exist. So if I was teaching like I was taught... I'm literally out of date. Like how many, how many times a day do you Google search or ask something? I have a, one of these Google homes where you just shout out, okay, Google. And my five-year-old, he's now five, but even when he was four, he goes over to that thing every single day and says, okay, Google, what's the temperature? He is four. He, like he doesn't know what that means, but he has to ask. And that's a, that's a cultural norm that we ask questions, that we look things up. My kids won't let me help them with anything. I looked it up on YouTube. <laughs> there, it's way more engaging than mom, for sure. I, for sure. I mean, <laughs> no one likes to talk more than me, so like, just beat it, mom. I got this. I just looked it up on YouTube on double speed. I'm good. You know, but it's like, you know, the how we access information in 2017 is different. And so if you're not innovating, you are, you're, you're obsolete. You're, you're out of date. <laughs> You Why make George cry. Your voices are the best. <laughs> sorry. sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, your voices you're are good. The best. You're good. I love them. I love them so much. They're so good. Sorry. Sorry, Katie. Please take over. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, I just got distracted because someone said that you lied about your age. There's no way you're 41. You're probably 32, which. <laughs> That's very nice of them. So that's a nice way of saying almost happy birthday. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, I, so innovation, absolutely. I just want to kind of close before we wrap up into um, participant questions. Um, some of the top things that I have taken away so far, basically, um, choice. We, like, we, we recognize that we, we like choice. Um, 
And that really empowers. So I like the 5E model and, you know, just thinking about how that leads to empowerment. When you give people opportunities to engage in content, explore and work on things that are meaningful, it creates um, opportunities to empower learners in the classroom, which I think is, is really powerful. And that notion about innovating and always creating something that's better, not repeating your past. So um, awesome, awesome highlights. Are we ready to go into the participant questions, George? Yes, yeah, yeah. so I got one from uh, Joe Archer. Um, and he, like, so <clears throat> distinguish between, because, yeah, at one point we we're talking about how, like, grades are not beneficial. But then you talked about feedback. And so I want you to actually make a clear like distinction between the two and, and why one is useful and maybe why one isn't. Grades are crappy feedback. And the leaks at research says No, but I need you to be straightforward. <laughs> tell us how you really feel. Yeah, yeah I need you to feedback. like tell us exact like what you're thinking. I don't need you to like beat around the book. <laughs> Okay, so research says that we accept grades as feedback, but we would rather have is highly detailed narrative that explains specifically what we did well and specifically what we could improve on. And I hope that you are all following the researcher, Thomas Gusky out of Kentucky. He has a lot of great stuff on grading and assessment. Um, I believe it's him. It might be Rick Romelli. I like both of them. Who says there's no such thing as average. There's no average amount of time to learn something. Um, you don't average the grades. I don't know. I can rant all day long about grades and feedback, but feedback should be actionable. It should, it should be very specific. Um, grades, what the heck does that even mean? It just means, you know, I don't even grade the top of the stack the same as the bottom. Um, Alice, I'm going to jump in on that too. One yeah, of the things thanks. that, um, no, and so I was mentioning earlier that I saw on Twitter, uh, you mentioned don't, you know, don't grade points. You stopped grading with points because it wasn't working and it wasn't helping kids um, understand how they need to improve. And a comment that somebody made was, you know, kids don't do, don't do their best if they, or they wait if you don't give them a grade and kids don't try if you, um, or this, you give them a, a B the second time that they turn it in. So what are your thoughts on grading and how can you um, help people think about that differently? Um, my, my thing I always come back to is lesson design. You know, when people want to argue, the kids won't do it if it's not for points. If you have to force points on them to get them to do it, then maybe your lesson plan needs some improvement. Um, I believe in my soul, kids would rather learn than eat. And if you're giving them high quality feedback and they know that they're going to learn, and that's a big difference, not that they're going to get a grade, that they're going to learn. I think you will, the kids will go far and above your expectations. And so I stopped giving points a long time ago and I didn't have a mass exodus of students doing work. Um, you know, we don't have the ability to grade laser sharp accurately. We don't have the ability to distinguish as human beings the difference between an 80 and an 89. Yet we put a huge amount of value between 89 and a 90. You're not that accurate. Actually, the, the differential, if you were to give the same paper out to a room full of teachers and they were to grade it, what would be the differential of scores? So the research yeah. I read said 30%, 30%, except math where it's 40%. So we're talking about three letter grades on any particular assignment. You is a margin of error of three letter grades. What kind of feedback is that? And so when, when you give kids, they want to learn. And when you make it about points and you make it the game of school, then that's exactly what they're going to do is they're going to play the game of school. Give me my points. Let's move on to the next assignment. I like to play a game where I just ask kids, what percent of your work is busy work? with no, so unscientific, no qualifiers whatsoever. At first, they will joke all of it. And then they'll back off and give me some number between 65% and 85%. Well, 65% of their work is not busy work. So why is it perceived as busy work? Because they do it, get their points, move on to the next thing, get their points, move on to the next thing. So when we look at John Hattie's research of what's effective for learning, mastery learning no kidding hey did you did you do poorly on chapter four that sucks good luck with chapter five no no don't work on chapter four stop no no don't don't work on it we're moving on i hope that someday you just might
might learn chapter four by osmosis somehow because we're not going to redo that. I mean, it's clearly stupid for learning. And yet that's, I mean, I remember when the associate superintendent said, we're going to retake the test till kids pass. And I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to show you how dumb it is. I'm going to do it. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not here to distribute points. I'm here so kids will learn. Can you believe that that was like an epiphany for me about seven years into teaching that I'm here for kids to learn not to distribute points? Well, so, I, th I think that's I think that's one of the the misconceptions. Like I even talked about this in the book that my focus when I first started teaching is you will learn the way I teach, not I will like adjust to how you learn. And I think one of the I think what you said was really fascinating. Well, you know, kids would rather learn than eat. And one of the people I listen to who's outside of education, but probably every person knows is Tony Robbins. And he says, what every human craves is progress. Like yeah. we, we want to know we're getting better. And that's something that, you know, once we see progress, that's a, that's a huge drive for us. And I, I think that looking at the importance, and that's one of the big distinctions I make is that, you know, here is school and here is learning. And there is often a disconnect between the two and the, the idea that like when I was a principal, I, I would work with my teacher and say, look, like your, your, your grade book and all this other stuff, it's, you might have numbers, but it's not scientific. It is subjective. And so I want you to actually know the kid and yeah, we were still in the part where we're doing percentages there, but I just trust you to like, you don't need to go through all that. Just kind of take a glance at it, but you actually know where that kid is that your, your grade book is not telling you, that so I think that's a I really love that distinction. So I have a question for you from uh, Debbie Bourne, and she said, "How do you provide choice when uh, there's a classroom with lots of you know uh, differentiated skills, uh, lots of you know different needs uh, of students? How, how how do you look at that uh, in that classroom?" Technology really helps provide choice a lot. If I have to be like, "Okay, guys, sit here while I give three different sets of directions," then the bell rings. So, you know, like I taught ninth grade algebra. The only way to get into ninth grade algebra is to fail eighth grade algebra. But if there were four minutes before the bell, my squirrely kids were on task working. It would not occur to them to wait for me to tell them what to do. So I post all the directions, basic level stuff that they can read. I put that online. So they walk in the door and they get to work. But then when I, when I have... Um, directions that they can read, then they also have directions that they can choose from. So again, I, I progress towards that, no matter what the assignment was, I always tried to have at least two choices and I really started to move to always having th three. And so they could read which choice they wanted to do and they could work on that. And then there is no average amount of time to learn. And so if you take, what are your learning objectives? What are the things that students really, really need to know? And the answer is always a spreadsheet. So if you put it on... <laughs> You know, you put these choices on a spreadsheet of what do they need to do, and they have a period of time to complete it rather than saying they have to finish it. Everyone learns everything on Tuesday, and then everyone learns this other thing on Wednesday. Why did we do that? Because it was good for learning. It's not good for learning, but we're human beings. There's only so much that we can do, and there's only so much paperwork that we can handle. But when we start to integrate technology, it allows us, you know what? It honestly is no different to me to do late work versus on-time work anymore now that I use Google Classroom. And late work used to be the bane of my existence. I mean, would I would suck hours of my life doing late work. And now it doesn't matter to me at all because Google Classroom, when a student turns in an assignment, it pushes me an email and I click on the email and I open Google Classroom from there and I address it. And that's actually my workflow is I go from um, the email to the to Google Classroom working on it. Well, if the email is late or if the email's on time, no extra effort. So that allows me to give kids more flex. Those that need more time, I because I'm a human being, and technology helps me do it now. Well, and so I think that point too, kind of going back to the point question, we have this notion that if it has to be done at a certain point in time, on a certain day, and you turn it in and you get X amount of points. And that notion, it, it is about average and it leaves so many kids behind. So thinking about Debbie's question, it's almost like when you have students with so many diverse needs, how do you not provide choice? You know, back to your, your conversation about um, they're motivated and inspired because they have options. So we can engage and empower kids more by providing them opportunities. 
to do, um, to think and to make choices about what they want to do, even if it's within the parameters of what you need to accomplish as a teacher. So yeah, awesome. Um, I think the one last point that I just want to make that you guys brought up, um, you said Thomas, Tom Gusty. I remember being in a uh, workshop with him and he gave the example of one assignment that every, he, one assignment asked 50 teachers to grade it. And it ranged from an F to an A based on how teachers grade it in their grade book. So we think that there's one right way and we tell kids you have to do it my way. But if they go to another teacher, it might be a great assignment or they might be doing well based on a teacher. And we need to have more conversations about that because yeah. um, we're, we're putting kids at a disadvantage. Yeah. Well, so one easy thing to do is consider just switching to credit, no credit. They're like, you're going to do this until you learn it. Mastery is not an option. You're going to do it until you learn it. You don't have the ability to grade accurately or fairly. I would not grade the top of the stack the same as the bottom. So there is that just amongst yourself, there is a margin of error, let alone if they had another teacher. So if we, if we want to focus on the learning is what's important, not the collecting of points. Love that. Mastery matters. So we're going to end off tonight. And uh, Alice, I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, people are already green screening you. Uh, which I was hoping for. So we're going to do that hashtag Alice Keeler green screen challenge. And so uh, just uh, I have are, a good sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, people are like, you know, putting you on fire just for the night. So I love it. Um, uh, Katie, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time as well. But Alice, before we go, uh, where can we find you? And, uh, and, and what book should we be looking at that you have out right now? Okay, great. Uh, I'm Alice Keeler. My website is alicekeeler.com. My Twitter handle is at Alice Keeler. Like all of my short uh, URLs are alicekeeler.com slash like game PD or whatever. I have four, almost five books. So I have 50 things you can do with Google Classroom, 50 things to go further for student-centered classrooms. Is it the same book? No, it's red. <laughs> <laughs> Math. <laughs> And of course, ditch that homework, which is really about how we can make better connections with kids and we can just do our class time, use our class time more efficiently so we don't need the homework. Awesome. Thanks, Alice. Thank Thanks, you. Katie. And uh, tomorrow, Twitter, chat, iMook, uh, Tara Martin, uh, Anik, and uh, Katie, Katie Martin will be hosting at 9 p.m. tomorrow, Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I uh, hope you had a great week. Uh, love the blogs. Keep them coming. Thanks again, Alice. Thanks, Katie. Have a wonderful Thanks, evening. George. Thanks, Katie. Bye. Good night. Thanks, Alice. Bye. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song? What I do ain't make believe. People say I sit and try, but when it comes to being daylight, it's just me, myself, and I.